Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today we have a guest, Judd Wallenbrock, who is the president and CEO of C. Mandavian Family, which is the parent company of Charles Krug. Welcome to the show, Judd. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. So today we're going to talk about the evolution of hospitality and really the creation of virtual hospitality. A lot of the things that you guys have done at Charles Krug to innovate with obviously the pandemic and shelter in place and all those things that have happened. I was wondering if you could give us a brief background prior to that about yourself as well as Seaman Davi and family. I'm a seasoned veteran of the wine industry. I, I'm actually in my 41st year within the wine industry. I'm one of these guys that got bit by the bug really young. I was actually 16 years old and my pusher, I'm sorry, my mentor was my older brother. Uh, and, my, and my first trip uh, was when I was 16 years old in 1974. I was a co-driver and I came up to Napa Valley when it looked a lot different than it is now. Went to places like Charles Krug and Robert Mondavi and BV and the only places that really existed back then. Definitely got bit by the bug and made a decision that I was going to walk a mile in the shoes of everybody that touched wine. So I was a retailer. I was a restaurateur. I was a winery rep. I started my own winery, which is uh, here in my backyard, actually, and did everything from make the wine to do the website, to do the accounting, to do the sales. It was a one-man show. And then I've been sort of that, what that did is that really prepared me to be able to run wineries experientially rather than theoretically. And that's what I've been doing for the last several years and moved up here in Napa Valley 27 years ago, 28 years ago. I have been working for wineries ever since. About four years ago, I became the president CEO of C. Mandavi and Family. Again, the original Mandavi family, Cesare and Rosa Mandavi from Italy, they had four children and they settled in, a lot of people know, Virginia, Minnesota of all places, the frozen tundra, the mining area and did not like mining. And they actually got into, realistically, they got into the hospitality industry in 1908. They opened up like a small hotel for the miners in a really weird twist of fate when prohibition hit in 1920 is actually when the Mandavis got in the wine industry. So they were not in the wine industry. They had a saloon. The saloon was closed due to prohibition. They turned it into a grocery store and started bringing in grapes from Lodi, California and selling grapes and sugar and yeast to the Italian immigrants to make their own home wine. And that's what got them launched. Uh, Mid-20s, they moved to California because that was a lot warmer than Virginia, Minnesota. And they took their four kids. Well, who were their four kids? Their four kids were the two daughters, Mary and Helen, but also the two boys, Peter and Robert Mondavi. And everybody knows, of course, the name Robert Mondavi. Ultimately, this enabled the whole company to purchase Charles Krug, the oldest winery in Napa Valley, the one that started it all, founded in 1861 by Charles Krug. In uh, 1943, the Mandavis bought it. Peter and Robert ran it together until notoriously they split up. In uh, 1965, Robert moved down the street and founded the iconic Robert Mandavi Winery. I worked for Robert from 92 to 01 and their kids, Tim and Michael, and now in a very strange world, the owners of Robert Mondavi are no longer Mondavis. It's owned by Constellation. So there's no Mondavis at the place that says Mondavi. And the place that doesn't say Mondavi, Charles Krug, actually, as of today, our fifth generation of ownership of Mondavis, as the fifth generation was just born today. Wow. It's quite a history. I thought you were going to say that, you know, you look pretty good for 120. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a long the red wine thing, isn't it? Yeah. 
Resterol or whatever. (laughs) So Charles Krug is also the first tasting room in California, I believe. It's 1882 or around that time. Right around that time. How does that legacy impact how you think about hospitality at Charles Krug? I think it's the legacy of innovation. So Charles Krug did a lot more than just us open up the first tasting room. You guys may or may not know this. Prior to Charles Krug, the basic wine press, the one that you, you know, like I make my home wine with a wine press. And when you press off the reds, it hasn't really changed in, in a couple hundred years. Well, it wasn't used in winemaking in California in the mid 1800s. Charles Krug thought being used at apple cider places. So apple cider was pressed off just like the current press is today. And he started using that for wine. And functionally, it's still used today. Of course, it's hydraulics and pneumatics and things like that, but it's essentially exactly the same thing. So he was also the first guy to bring Cabernet into Napa Valley. You know, I mean, there's a lot of innovation that he did, including the tasting room, starting a wine club. He started selling his wines from the winery. Not only that, but he'd take it into San Francisco and sell wine. This all sounds like normal stuff to us today, right? But back then, that was all innovation. And I think that spirit of innovation was carried over into the Mandavi family. Certainly, Robert and Peter embraced innovation. You guys may or may not know this, but prior to Robert and Peter taking over Charles Krug, French oak barrels were not used in winemaking. 1944, 1945, that they started bringing in oak barrels. And now it's the standard, right? Peter Mandavi was really the winemaker. And prior to Peter, cold stabilization didn't exist. He was the one that brought cold stabilization into it. So this is a family and a company that has a history of innovation. And now that's just being manifested in what's going on with hospitality right now. Always looking for the next step, the next experience, the next way to approach people, the next communication. Wow. Yeah, and it seems like there's quite a few different things you do in hospitality at Charles Krug. I noticed that you do weddings on site, which is pretty rare in in Napa Valley. Is that big business for Charles Krug? It's an interesting question, Peter. It's We're very, very fortunate. When you've been around longer than the city of St. Helena, you're grandfathered into a lot of different things, right? So we can do weddings. I think there's only three of us that can do weddings in Napa Valley. We don't want to be known as the wedding winery, right? When somebody can have a wedding at the oldest winery in Napa Valley, it's a pretty special thing for them. And we feel really fortunate that we can provide that for them. And I'm going to guess that if we went into the wedding business, we could do 365 weddings a year, but you know, we limit it to about 20. That's about it. Because what we really are doing and the innovation to which you talk about is we're really focused on turning this incredibly historic estate into what I would call the cultural hub of Napa Valley. It was the cultural hub when Charles Krug was there. When, when Charles Krug built that winery, that was the gathering place for everything. And that meant not just winemaking. It had all sorts of things that were going on culinarily, arts-wise, and that's what we're bringing back. And frankly, the Mandavis did this a long, long time ago. The longest-running wine tasting in Napa Valley, I think it's like 67 years old. It's called Tasting on the Lawn. Last year was the first year we couldn't do it. We had to turn it into a virtual tasting. But definitely uh, doing all sorts of different activities to present wine as part of the arts, right? Wine is an art, Mm -hmm. part of the cultural arts that go on. So that's what we're really focusing in on. Everything from I think you guys have seen, we do comedy. We host the Napa Valley Film Festival. We have a speaker series called SIP, Series of Interesting People, little kind of like a little TED Talks, a whole host of other events that are going on. Music, obviously, forming arts. It's a phenomenal facility in the heart of Napa Valley. 
with so much history that, yes, let's take advantage of that. And yes, have a few weddings, but more importantly, let's bring culture as a hub. With the virtual lawn party, you could have sent people uh, little squares of AstroTurf or something (laughs) with with the wine to uh, to drink. Yeah, that's exactly it. And part of that culture seems to be food and wine as well, right? And there's some food and wine within your hospitality that's tied to Rosa Mandavi and some of her recipes. Is that a big draw to Charles Krug? You know, a lot of people do food and wine. It makes sense. And you guys are in the wine business. You probably feel the same way I do. It's not food and wine. Wine is food, right? You know, it's part of the plate. It's not necessarily an addendum to them. But we all know that food tastes better with wine and wine tastes better with food. And so absolutely, we are not in the restaurant business. We don't want to compete with our local restaurateurs. But we also want to be able to give people that sensation, a teaser, so to speak, of, hey, this goes great with this kind of food or something like that, and not have them walk away on an empty stomach after drinking wine. We have a little partnership with Pete Segazio. You guys know Segazio Winery, right? They sold a handful of years ago. Pete is a salumi freak. He actually studied in Italy to learn how to make world-class salumis. And then he came back, and in Cloverdale, he built a salumi factory. There's some beautiful Italian word for that, which I can't remember. Doesn't sound so good in English, but uh, USDA approved everything like that. And he does custom salumis for us. So he makes salumi made with our wines that are paired with those wines that they're made with. So that's, you know, an element behind it. And then of course, our pizzas, you know, you get the Italian heritage of the Mandavis, Italians and food. I mean, it's almost synonymous, right? Right. So we have phenomenal handmade pizzas that we make at the winery in our outdoor pizza kitchen, which is great because everybody has to be outdoors anyway. But also going back to Peter Sr.'s wife, Blanche, she had sourdough starting. We have that same sourdough starter goes into our focaccia. You know, we're talking about from the 40s that's been carried through the generations of the family that's still being used today. Wow. You're making me hungry. And, yeah. <laughs> and I, uh, that Charles Krug is actually one of the wineries in Napa I have yet to visit. So (laughs) another thing to put on the list. Open invitation, Peter. (laughs) I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I'll have to take you up on that, Judd. In a normal year, non-COVID, obviously, without all the restrictions, how many people visit Charles Krug? Right. Yeah. I think you'd probably be surprised because you are not alone at not ever coming to Charles Krug. We average about 40,000 people a year which I don't know if that sounds like a big number or a small number, but let me put that into perspective. When I was at Robert Mandavi, we got about 300,000 people a year. If you guys have spent much time in Napa recently, the entire valley, you know, when I first got in the industry, Napa Valley started in Yonville, (laughs) and then it went forward. In today's environment, it's almost as if Napa Valley is sliding south and getting past St. Helena is harder and harder to get people to draw them up and up above there. Yeah, we get about 40,000 people a year. About 10,000 of those, by the way, are delivered by the Napa Valley Wine Train, which of course is closed right now. They're awesome partners. I'll just tell you, they're phenomenal partners. They took over the ownership of the wine train about four years ago from the previous owners and have really, talk about a renaissance, they've really made it a sensational operation. So really with about 40,000 people coming through, it's not that many people in the grand scheme of uh, Highway 29 in Napa Valley, to be honest with you. So I'm curious, you had mentioned these other events like the comedy series, a series of interesting people, the artist series. Is part of the 
ethos of creating those events in order to keep people or to get people when they make it to the destination, because you said it's getting everything sliding south so that they're spending more time there and interacting and, and spending more time with the brand? Or like, what is the motivation for creating all these extra events? Yeah, the real motivation behind this is something that I've employed almost everywhere I've gone in the wine industry, which is event-based marketing. And sometimes that can be a, a bad word. People think that events are bad, but the reality is that you have to have a discovery vehicle for a brand. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to where I come in and say, yeah, I'm the CEO of, of Charles Krug. And they say, oh, I love Charles Krug. And I'll say, great. When was the last time you were there? And they say, well, geez, you know, it was probably 20 years ago. Well, we've changed quite a bit in 20 years. The tasting room was a, was a double wide trailer out in the front of the operation. Today, it's an incredibly beautiful, oh, just a phenomenal operation where uh, from a, a renovated barrel room that is now just stunningly gorgeous with all this food and everything that we're talking about. Or I'll ask people, like, when was the last time you had Charles Krug? They go, yeah, you're right. You know, I haven't had it in 10 years. Well, it's time to change that. So what are we doing? We're doing events to create awareness of the property, to maybe bring people into the property that haven't been there. Give them a reason to come. Because once they're there, they're going to taste our wines and they're going to come back and they're going to tell their friends. We're very confident that our wines will speak for themselves, but you got to taste them in the first place. And it's really a vehicle to get the wine in people's mouths. And the getting people to come to these events, is it a ticket-based system or like how... Maybe you can walk me through an example of one of them. So it's like, I'm, I'm going to buy a online, like an event or invitation and kind of go to one of the events. Yeah, absolutely. So it's going to be something like almost any other event that you would be going to buy a ticket. Sometimes the ticket includes other things, you know, a certain amount of wine or whatever it happens to be. Some of the events are curated by us, but not put on by us. The comedy series is a great example. That is a company that is a, a turnkey company that brings in the comedians runs the whole show for us. We're the vehicle. We're the venue for them. It's whatever's appropriate for whatever it happens to be. It's almost always ticket-based. I'm a firm believer that if it's, uh, if it's free, it's cheap. And, <laughs> and uh, sometimes people don't show up if they didn't pay for it. <laughs> uh, that's we're definitely we're true. Californians after we're, you know, that's what we do. We don't show up. We've been known to be flaky at times. <laughs> and so how do you think of the return on these events? Obviously, it brings people to the, the property, gets them trying the wine. But do the events have a return for the business just on ticket sales? Or is it you know the accompanying wine sales? Or do you hope to convert people to wine club memberships? How do you think about that? Yes to almost all of those, Peter. The reality is when I think about events, I don't think of the events themselves as a profit center. I think of them as a break-even center, and then it's our job to then convert these people into believers, get them to buy future wine, get them to join the club, and get them to evangelize and tell other people about it. So that's on us to do that. And we believe firmly that once you see the property and you feel the history dripping from the walls of this place, and you meet the Mandavis who are there all the time, you know, I mean, this is not, these are not hands-off people. These are you know, phenomenal, you know, family members that are there all the time. And then you're entertained or you're educated or whatever it happens to be, you'll come back and, and you'll also tell your friends about it because in the long-term luxury wine marketing, right? It's not advertising that's going to be doing this. It's going to be word of mouth. It's going to be people who are going to come back and say, you know what? That Charles Krug is a special place and it's endorsement. And that's what we want. 
to help other wineries who may be smaller or, or haven't experimented with events to walk through an example, like how you, from a business perspective, you said you obviously want to have the events break even and not necessarily make money, but definitely not lose money. And so what are some of the metrics you're looking at to show that this event was successful worthwhile to keep doing that? And is that something that you're looking at? Like Peter had mentioned, like wine club memberships. Have you proven that for successful versus different types of these events as well? It's all about metrics. And frankly, not to be too blunt, but it's also all about database, right? So, mm-hmm. so, so we have something that almost every event that we have, we put together something. It's something I've carried around with me for a long time. I do a lot of acronyms and I really apologize up front for this. <laughs> but uh, the acronym is a game plan. And the game plan is what's your goal? What's your activities? What's the actions? What are the metrics that you want to measure this by? And what are the enhancements afterwards? Now you've done a postmortem on this and what are the enhancements to a process improve, make it better. Everything we do starts with a goal. We want to sell 100 tickets. We want to sell $10,000 worth of wine. We want to convert 10 people into the wine club. Ooh, how do we do against that? And by the way, it's not just at the event itself. There's a tail on that, right? Because we know that an event is really not a very good selling opportunity. You guys probably know that. If you go to a concert, you know, are you going to join a wine club? No, you're there for the concert. (laughs) But the communications that I have with you after that fact and the fact that I thanked you the next week for coming to the event and, hey, come on back on us for a free tasting and bring your friends. You know, it's the tail that comes on for that. And I track all of that through our POS system, our CRM system. So I know who's coming back in and I can track to see if we converted them or not. So conversion rate to a sale, conversion rate to a wine club, and then retention rate to that club. is Those are your magic markers. And I'm assuming you're looking at how many events someone is repeating. So it's like, how many events does it take on average for someone to convert? Who's coming to the events? Frankly, you also want to track to see if they're bringing friends with them as well. You know, because again, that's the evangelism part of it, right? They really liked what they did. They saw comedy, you know, number one, and they brought friends to comedy too. You're tracking the referrals as well in your CRM. Yeah. And that's that's not just the events. That's actually, you know, reaching out to hotel concierge, to B&B concierge, to restaurateurs, to anything, to Twitter, to Facebook, to LinkedIn, to Instagram, to anything. We're tracking everything. How'd you hear about us? It's a simple question. And you can tag that. It's going to tell me loads about what we're doing right and what we're not doing right. What does it look like for pick an event in terms of baseline? Like, what does that equate to turning into a wine club sign up? Is there a conversion percentage that you feel is like a minimum threshold of doing that event? I don't really think of the events as the primary goal is to get a club member. It's the subsequent trips where they come in just for the wine. If I'm coming in for a winemaker dinner, yeah, I'm looking for a conversion. If I'm doing a concert, I don't have any expectation. I have very low expectations because then it's all gravy on top of that, right? Where we do get our conversion rates is they come back, they set up an appointment, they sit down with one of our educators and taste through our wines and hear the story and and get the tour. That's where I want to have it you know, X percent conversion rate. And obviously the higher, the better, but conversion rates are one thing. Retention rates are the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Got it. Burn the hand, so to speak, you know? Yeah. So that's something Peter and I've talked a lot about. It's it's about uh, knowing when someone drops off and why they dropped off and what you can do to prevent that. I'm assuming different events have different scale or size in terms of tiers. If it's a concert, like preferential seating and things like that, that you'd be using data to like 
offer those up to some of the either people who are already members for retention or people that you think are on the verge of becoming members. Yeah. This is going to sound kind of weird, but but I'll sell more wine and, and have more wine club signups to a party of six than I will to a party of 60. Mm-hmm. The more intimate the affair and the more focused the affair, which is going to be a great segue, by the way, into virtual tastings and in-home tastings and things like that, which is where the you know world has changed to, for, at least for us. It really is intimacy is, I think, probably the key to conversion. And it's just focused because why? We all want special treatment and we all want access to stuff that somebody else doesn't have. You know, if I got a group of 60 or 100 or 150 people at a concert, I'm not special anymore. But if I'm sitting there with four people and I'm, and I'm sitting there with the CEO of the company or Peter Mandavi or Mark Mandavi, I'm converted. Definitely. Yeah, we've definitely seen some places where they change from an open tasting room to appointment only. Yeah. And they're seeing, you know, a fifth or a tenth of the number of people, but their revenue and, and wine club or other metrics are all all the same. They're actually or even better. <laughs> they're selling more wine. Yeah. We were mandated to go to appointment only with COVID lockdown, right? And then of course it's outdoor only tastings, et cetera, et cetera. We were incredibly lucky because we already had on the books to build these outdoor cabanas and then COVID hit just as we opened them. I was like, well, the only way you can do tastings is outdoor. And we're like, well, look what we have, you know, it was perfect timing. Yeah. We saw half as many people and, and sold equally the same amount of wine and sometimes more. So we functionally doubled our per taster conversions. I always say it's better to be lucky than it is to be good. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> but that is a, that is a perfect segue into talking more about virtual prior to COVID. Did you guys have an online or virtual strategy? The answer is yes, but it wasn't very well fleshed out to be honest with you. You know, I think a lot of people who have, particularly who have really beautiful facilities, that's what they focus their attention on. And the online or virtual of any kind was sort of secondary This made us change our direction really fast. I will tell you that where we had already gone, and this is coming from a previous life of mine with another winery, 100% consumer direct, we had established an in-home tasting group. You know, so we'd come to your house and it normally started, it revolved around a wine club member. And then we used the wine club members as a recruiter, right? So they would do a tasting in their house. We'd limit it to no more than 20 people, which is inevitably couples. So it's really 10 couples. And one of those couples is already a club member. So now you're really talking about nine potential club members. And we did our metrics behind that. And we said, here's our goals and blew away those numbers. The conversion rate to a sale and the conversion rate to the club membership was significantly higher than what we anticipated. And then there was a third element behind that. And that was recruiting for the next tasting right? You're creating now a spider web, right? You've got a web of, we can't use the word viral anymore, right? Because there's a pandemic. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but, uh, and that's where we were going. And in my previous company, which was a, not a very big company, it ended up being a, it was a million dollar channel. And, uh, you know, it's like, not oh. bad, right? And yeah. uh, so we started doing that with Charles Krug and then the pandemic hit. And all we really did was take a look at this in-home tasting and say, great, we can still do in-home tastings. It's just that it's two-dimensional instead of three-dimensional, right? And that's kind of where we're at right now. So, you know, when we talk about the future, what's going to hang around and what's not going to hang around, this is going to hang around. You know, it's going to be definitely around for a long time. 
It's like one of the qualifications is how big of a screen can you put me up on? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And I will tell you, I mean, I do those. It's not just consumer direct. We're using it for education for our distributors. We're doing it for wine tastings and introducing, you know, next vintages and things like that to our accounts. And then a lot of the accounts, for whatever reason, we sell a lot to country clubs, you know, and they have their members and we're now doing wine tasting events for their members. And not only that, now we're incorporating some of our other events, such as comedy, and we do trivia night and everything like that into, so it starts off with a wine tasting with, let's say, Mir or a Mandavi or, you know, one of the educators. But that's the first half of the show. The second half of the show is actually entertainment that Country Club has put together as part of their night's entertainment for their members. It's a combination of different approaches. So taking some of these events into a virtual space that were typically, you know, in person, like the comedy club and the series of interesting people. I'm curious on, have they all translated into the virtual space or like what's kind of hit and what's missed? What are you still evolving? The entertainment part of it is still evolving. Internally, we just tested this. There's an outside company that does sort of online trivia and it was awesome. We all had so much fun that we're rolling it out now out to the thing. We just need to incorporate more wine into it. You know, so it's more, now's the time to crack open the Sauvignon Blanc and we're going to ask these series of questions, not necessarily about the wine, but just, you know, to have fun and make it more social. A lot of these events, I think we're experimenting with doing magic shows online, (laughs) kind of weird, but we've become sort of the entertainment vehicle for both customers and for accounts, things like that. What The other thing we're finding is that we've got so many companies now that are coming to us, for whatever reason, a lot of financial services companies, they hire us to do a tasting. So they'll buy tasting packs for their 50 best customers and then set up a virtual tasting with us hosting it for their customers. We're the entertainment for other companies now too. You did mention the evolution of the in-home tastings, which have become virtual tastings. How are these executed? Are you sending them out bottles? Are they half bottles? Are they vials, coravins, repours? Like, Because a lot of times in these tastings, you're tasting more than one wine, and, and not every couple is going to want to open a bunch of wines in one night. Can't have 20 people, or you're not supposed to have 20 people in one place anymore. The idea behind this is that really what you're trying to do is you're trying to bring the experience that you have. You, you, know, you can't come to the winery, so we're going to bring the winery to you. And when you come to the winery, you're getting poured tastes, right? So you're not getting, you're not, you're not opening up full bottles. We are doing full bottles. We're not doing half bottles. We don't make half bottles. We're not decanting and putting them into little taster kits and things like that. Because what we have found is that I would say 90% of the time, it is at least a couple and normally a family that's there. There's normally four or five people there tasting, which is a bottle of wine when you think about it. But then we limit it to no more than three bottles of wine because you're right. You don't want to have a tasting of six bottles of wine and then you get, oh my God, I've got, yeah, at least you're home safe and you're not driving, but still six bottles of wine is a lot. So we definitely try to limit it to three bottles, which is a very doable thing, both from a cost, you know, the consumer pays the money for it, you know, and the shipping, everything like that, but also from a time commitment. You know, if you're going to taste through six bottles of wine, not everybody has that attention span. And so how have people heard about all these virtual events, I mean, without the physical tasting room and the winery being that kind of draw and engine of awareness for for Charles Group, how are you making people aware of it? And what if any of those things have been more successful than others? You know, so you want to start with people who already love you. 
<laughs> and I want to tell you, you know, what's going on. So the wine club is definitely a good resource for that. You know, and as you might imagine, a lot of the people that belong to our wine club also are executives of their own company. So they turn it into that company event, things like that. But social media is a big element for us. You know, we definitely get a lot out through social. And then from there, it's that word of mouth, which is what social really ultimately is, right? Turning on. We don't do a whole lot of advertising, no traditional advertising. We definitely do digital advertising with Facebook and Instagram. You know, you can cap that, you know, exactly how much you're going to spend and, and what the return is very, very quickly. We don't spend a whole lot on that. We do a lot more of it based off of database and referral business. So if you were to look at the traditional person who went to the winery a year ago and the you know, you're kind of looking at the metrics for those versus a virtual participant, how would you compare and contrast? Like, is, is a virtual consumer that joins one of your tastings worth more than someone who would have, you know, in the past stopped by the winery? Yeah, I think we're going to find that out, Robert, because that's really, it's a little too soon to see what the lifetime value is of these people. I told you we have about 40,000 people a year that come to the winery, which is not very many people out of the, you know, 300 million in the United States and the, <laughs> and the 200 million, you know, consumers. So relying on traffic is not uh, going to cut the mustard long term, you know. So we have to go out and bring the winery to these people. And I think that's one of the reasons why this virtual tastings and these when people start recommending that they, gosh, have you done the Charles Krug one? It's so cool. That's where we're relying more on it. And I think as we see time goes by, we'll see those people have a lifetime value that's going to be equal to people who have actually visited the winery. Ultimately, we want to get them all to the winery, though. There's no way you can reproduce or replace the touch and feel of, of this awesome estate. We do have a virtual tour. We have that 360-degree virtual tour on our website. I employ that, by the way, in my own virtual tastings. So I take people into our tasting room. I take them out to our vineyards. I take them into our carriage house and things like that so that they can, almost as if they're at the winery, that's pretty good. It's not a replacement for kicking the dirt and and smelling the, the flowers and yeah. Until Facebook builds Oculus to have a headset and a full body yeah. suit where it's <laughs> exactly in there. <laughs> and I swear to God, they're not that far away from that. <laughs> Probably not. Yeah, but there's something to be said about the, you know, we've all been on vacation and visit a wine location and you taste it. And you're like, oh, this, this house wine of this restaurant was amazing. I was like, yeah, you're on vacation. You're relaxed. Yeah. You're with your loved ones. Context. Of course it tastes good. You try to replicate a wider experience at home, you're missing a lot of the ambiance and factors, of course. It's yeah. difficult. That's true of, um, of a restaurant too, right? You know, for me to, to, to go into, you know, a top-notch restaurant or to take it at home, big difference. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And then you have to like reheat it and there's all these instructions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So have you learned any best practices from all the digital and virtual things you guys have done so far? I think we're continually learning. I hope we are. I mean, we better always be learning off of it because I think it's always changing. And just look at the technology that's involved. You know, I mean, we're, we're on Squadcast right now, but the rest of the world, you know, mostly it's on Zoom. Well, a year ago, why didn't we buy stock in Zoom? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of technological differences that are going on. You know, we kind of laughed about Oculus, but how far are we away from, from having holographic tastings? where yeah. Peter Mugabe is going to pop up on the middle of your table. You know, I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> I honestly don't think that that's that far away. I mean, we're already doing concerts with rappers doing that, right? So, mm-hmm. I, so I think technology is one that 
is going to force us to, to learn more and more about it. But I think the other part about it is we're learning more and more about the best practices of hospitality. In many ways, this is block and tackle hospitality just with a different channel. So nothing really new under the sun, but it is definitely. So I mean, what, what really is it? It's, it's like, let's plan it, let's execute it, and let's follow up on it. Well, that's the same no matter what. Uh, it's just how you do it. My next announcement is going to be through a text message to a mass group. I don't know. It's different. <laughs> so I'm curious whether virtual or in-person hospitality, is there, are there been things that you've done? And you're like, okay, we're not going to do that again. It didn't meet once you did your game plan and you looked at it. It's like, this didn't make my metrics. Like, I think failures are the best way to grok learnings and understand how to do things better. I'm curious if you have any of those that you could talk about. Content is the most that you learn about, you know? And uh, so in other words, like we've had some comedy shows that the comedy is really good, just not for that client base. You know, in other words, it was like the wrong audience. Or, and comedy is another good example where, for instance, we're learning that as a comedian, when it's not live, you don't get the feedback from, so you can't read the audience mm. where to go next with your humor, right? So it's very sterile. And maybe that's not the best, you know, vehicle for that particular form of entertainment. Mostly what I learn is, is that sometimes you're just like a really strong email campaign. You may think that you wrote it beautifully and everything like that. And then you got zero sales out of it. The, the content wasn't just quite right. So you have to constantly monitor and edit and uh, try new things with your content. And then the other thing you really experiment with is learning how to segment your database so that you're not saying the same thing to everybody all the time because everybody's different. That's a big part of the digital transition is segmenting messaging, not only by platform, but by user cohort, what motivates them. So it's great that you're already taking that data-driven approach or data-informed oh, approach absolutely. to messaging. Yeah, it's, it's you know, the term I use is mass customization, right? And that's what you're really doing. Yeah. So given all that, all these things that you're learning as we you know, hopefully get back to some form of normalcy in 2021, what's next for Charles Krug in the form of hospitality? Like, where are you pushing the envelope forward? Always keeping something fresh is important. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. We're in development right now. I think you guys will absolutely love this because I know you guys happen to believe in terroir. I know that by... <laughs> everything. <laughs> and we do have a, a very notable footprint in Napa Valley. We got 850 acres and you guys know Napa Valley. There, it's more diverse with the soils than any other place on the face of the planet, right? Well, a lot of people, you know, think that that's cool. And I always have to explain, like, again, if you subscribe to the idea that you are what you eat, the grapes taste like the soil and therefore that's what they taste like. You know, right, right now what we're having fun with is creating uh, chocolate truffles that uh, look like dirt clods that... Uh, <laughs> that look like the soil from the various regions, the sub-appellations from which we grow. And then the flavor profiles are not dirt, but they're going to look like <laughs> the dirt. And then they're going to have the flavor profiles, not necessarily, we're not going to infuse them with the wines, but it, let's say it's the Merlot. It tastes like, uh, like uh, hot cocoa and cherries. Well, the flavor profile that'll be in there will be hot cocoa and cherries. You're going to taste that dirt clod that looks like the soil with the white ash on it from the blah, blah, blah. It's a way to learn about terroir without having it forced down your throat. That's a terrible way of saying it when, since you're eating a dirt clot, but you know, like done it in an educational fashion is done in a much more entertaining fashion. It's so bite-sized knowledge. Yeah. Bite-sized knowledge. And I think it's just one of those things that a lot more will be done via your telephone. Well, even when you're at the winery, 
doing the QR codes for your stories and things like that. Just like we've all learned now at restaurants. That's how we read our menus now, right? Mm-hmm. And isn't it cool? I mean, it's, I don't yeah. want that paper anyway, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know. I'm still partial to paper sometimes, which uh, includes the book. But <laughs> well, tell me about it. I read, the, I read the Napa Register every day, hard copy, every day. And it's like my, oh, wow. it's my little, I don't know, my cup of coffee. It's what I have to do to. Yeah. So outside of hospitality, were other digital elements big for Charles Krug, like e-commerce through the website or phone sales, email, especially, you know, since hospitality was closed or limited for a large portion of the year? A couple of things that we weren't doing at all prior to sort of this current regime that's in there, my team, we weren't doing telesales at all. You know, if somebody would call us an order, that was telesales. (laughs) (laughs) Now it's a very viable and large channel for us. I think a lot of people, when they hear the word telesales, they think of an invasive phone call. It's not a cold call. We're not calling strangers. We're calling customers of ours. Basically, it's a courtesy call of, from your winery saying, hey, how you doing? And I understand, you know, you like this. You may be out of this. Can we help you with, you know, you know it's not a high pressure sale. And it's, it's more of a courtesy call, right? Or for that matter, it even sometimes starts with just like, hey, six weeks ago, you were at the winery. How was your experience? You know, and then that segues into, you know, a wine sale or an offer or whatever it happens to be. So telesales, huge. People actually like hearing from their winery. That's, I think that's the where people, a lot of wineries think, oh, I'm, I'm invasive on them. It's like, no, they want to hear from you, you know. And by the way, they're hearing from 500 other wineries. So if you're not <laughs> talking to them, you're lost. Definitely the e-com side of it, you know, the amount of And content, again, and again, that splicing and dicing of our database, the amount of content that was going out was very small relative to what it is now. And that's really generating an enormous amount of sales for us and also an enormous amount of rapport with our customers, just like the phone. I think that's the other thing that these things are doing. They're creating a rapport that didn't necessarily exist before. So it's how you do it makes you even closer to your client. We did something as simple as put a chat box on our website. Who knew That's how huge, many people yeah. wanted to talk, who wanted to chat about wine online a lot? Yeah, it helps when it's an actual human responding to it. Like some of the big companies have, have bots, which are a little annoying. Yeah, but, the, uh, the bots are annoying, but the, no. <laughs> yeah. You know, half the time it's somebody's working the floor and saying, look, I'll get right back to you, but I'm with customers on the floor right now. <laughs> get back to you. So yeah, it's very human. There's also like some great takeaways, even outside of the hospitality space. For every guest that we have on our show, we ask a wrap-up question of what is a lasting trend in a fizzling fan? And I was wondering if you could tell us something that you think has staying power of a trend or you think is popular now but won't last. Well, I definitely think digital and actually these virtual tastings are here to stay. And I think for a variety of reasons. One of the things that I think is maybe understated on this is the ability for a Mandavi to be in so many different places at the same time to come into your house as opposed to hop on an airplane, burn gasoline. You know, there's a green side to this that I think is not wasted on people. You know, we're now in our fifth generation as of today, the fifth generation of Mandavis. Our MO, our our real goal is, is to build a sustainable business model that will last generations upon generations of Mandavis. If you guys don't know, I mean, the model that I'm employing for our company is the Antonori family. They're in generation 26. And as you know, most companies don't make it past generation two. And this is a big thing for us. It's it's, It's very important to maintain that way. Well, the more the family can be more accessible to more people, 
this technology, this virtual technology has really opened the doors for that. Who do people really want to talk to? I mean, it's great. You guys are talking to the CEO. What do people really want to talk to? They want to talk to the owners and the winemakers. Wow, they can do it now a lot more uh, readily and a lot more uh, easily virtually. And I think that's here to stay, without a doubt. Something that I'm hoping is a passing fad that we won't see anymore at all are fires and pandemics. I'm hoping we're done with those. Those are just fads and they're gone. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least just once every hundred years. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get past that. But I'm going to tell you something that I think is controversial at this point in time. You know, we're in the fine wine business. I'm not throwing stuff up against the wall. I'm not trying to make cocktails out of wine and putting them into a can. I mean, that's just not our business. That's other people's business. It's not our business. But I will tell you that I look at the massive explosion of seltzers. And I will tell you that I think that that's not going to last. And I'll tell you why. Because I have been doing this for a long time. And and my first sort of, my gateway to wine was Boone's Farm and Annie Green's <laughs> right? Well, they had their heyday, right? They were, they were mm-hmm. they made a ton of money and they sold a lot, but then they went away. And then what were they eventually replaced by? Well, they were wine coolers, right? And wine coolers exploded and they, and they made their way, but then, they, but then they died off. We're now in that seltzer craze. It's only a matter of time before that will die off. In the meantime, those people who are in it and making money, good on you. Yeah. It, Robert and I had Zima, I think. Yeah, yeah. Generation in between me there. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's interesting. Basically calling a white claw fizzling fat. You know, it depends how fast we're talking the fizzle. Well, I think the tail is pretty long, but it's not going to be for, you know. Is it going to be here in 20 years? No. Two great insights. There's some really interesting topics that we covered, and uh, I learned a lot. And I love, I really love the the game plan. I think a lot of wineries uh, should be taking that approach and using data insights to to help with their hospitality, whether it's on site or virtual. All right, thank you, you guys. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, Shame. cheers. Thank you.